We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with, and here's their stories. Hello, and welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today was a three-time Pro Bowler and two-time Super Bowl champ. He was a star running back on the only perfect team in league history. He and Larry Zonka became the first tandem to both rush for 1,000 yards in the same year. The two of them along with Jim Kick, formed arguably the best backfield in league history. Some might even say it was perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Eugene Mercury Morris. Mercury, welcome. Thank you, man. Glad to be here. I uh, look forward to kind of walking through your career and, and you know, some, some incredible highlights and some you know, very interesting stories to tell. Um, but I thought we'd start by just talking about the fact you were you were born in Pittsburgh. You yeah. attended Avonworth High School in the Pittsburgh suburbs. You were a football, basketball, and baseball player. Um, tell me yeah. about that. Tell me about your high school experience. It wasn't a big high school, was it? No, not really, but it was a consistent high school. Avonworth High School, formerly Ben Avon High School, was the is the oldest charter school in the state of Pennsylvania, chartered the, in 1884 in Pennsylvania. And uh, it, it remained a, a small school. Even when I left there, the, I, we had the largest graduating class. It was 155. And uh, I met a guy about 15 years ago who graduated in 84. And I was driving down the street and close to my home. And he goes, hey, are you Mercury Morris? I said, yeah. Hey, I went to Avonworth High School, class of 84. I said, and how many graduated? He said, 145. I said, we're still on top, 155. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, were, you, were you running back in football in high school? Yes, I was running back in high school. Uh, Pop Warner to, to the pros, I played running back. I went to school at, in, uh, in Avonworth. I went to school at Avonworth High School, but how I went to West Texas, I had gotten some offers from a few schools, but I played a game against Coriopolis High, uh, and it was a school that we never had never beaten. I went to a predominantly white uh, high school 
in my graduating class, there was me and Denny Edmonds and my cousin, Billy. We were the only two African-American, well, three African-Americans, two males and one female. Uh, but Denny was the quarterback. And he and I were both captains on the, on the basketball team. But it was, just, it was a place that if you grew up in that kind of area, uh, how it, it was, it wasn't that it was uh, upper class or upper middle class or lower class or middle class. It was all of that. So you had an inkling from each person or, or, or where that person's life and lifestyle, where they were in life and how uh, it, it back then things were a lot different. Uh, the top three problems in high school in 1965 were running in the hallway, talking in class, and being late. The top three <laughs> problems in 1985, teen violence, teen pregnancy, teen drug use, but that's another thing. <laughs> but the, so where I came from, and I went uh, to, uh, to West Texas because we played Coriopolis the last game of the year, and uh, my college coach, we ran a my college coach, well, would be my college coach, he came up to see another guy who was playing for Coriopolis High. And uh, this guy, uh, the first play, uh, it was a toss 29. I, I went 65 yards for a touchdown. It was called back. The second play, toss 29. It was 70 yards for a touchdown. That was called back. The third play, toss 29, 75 yards for a touchdown. And that one was the one that counted. The reason why I'm telling you that is because He had the offensive reel looking at a defensive player for Coriopolis High. So as one of my other coaches said, that's the guy we're talking about. He said, the hell with that son of a bitch. I want to know who that son of a bitch is right there. (laughs) So in seeing the defensive reel, he saw me play and score on three different times on the same play. And that's how I went to West Texas um, in 1965, where in 67 and 68, I finished number two in, in the nation in rushing, beat out the last game of the year, both years by juice. And I, I broke the record for most yards in one game, most yards in one season and most yards in a career and division one football in 1968, which is how I got down here to Miami in the 1969 draft. Sure. And, and coming from West Texas state, you actually finished number nine in the Heisman voting in 68 behind Simpson and obviously a handful of others, but, you know, pretty right. from West Texas state. Right. How'd you know that? I do my, my research. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's right, man. And, uh, and I always had that rivalry with juice. And, and I think it was the, the blessing was, is that he did whatever he had to do to get him to Buffalo and I did whatever I had to do that brought me to Miami. <laughs> uh, we were door, we were, we were like doormats in 1969, but I went to the, the Jets played the Colts in 69 and Super Bowl three. And I was at that game as a uh, college guy where my uh, agent flew me down to Miami. And a uh, little did I know that I was paying for it, but he flew me to Miami and laid out the red carpet for me to, get me to sign with him and which I did. And I had the privilege of being at Super Bowl three where Joe Namath predicted he was going to beat Don and did it. And, and as I got to know Don Shula over the years, the one thing that he's always hated was for somebody that predicts that they're going to do something against him and they do it. 
Right. Because it's totally out of his control. Yeah. But and, that's how it started with him and him getting fired from the, the Colts for losing that game and me getting drafted by the Dolphins in, in what would be the turn of the century. I mean, the turn of the, the, the decade as we entered into the 70s. Uh, I, I went to school at West Texas. It was integrated, but the Southeast Conference was not integrated. There was not one black ball player in the Southeast Conference. Basketball, right. football, baseball, nothing. Not one. Not one. In Southwest Conference, one. And his name was Jerry Levias. And sure. he played a wide receiver for SMU. And he caught absolute hell. But that was the 60s, man. You know, now I'm in my 70s. And like it seems like the freaking 60s all over again. That, but these kids, they miss how they got to where they are. Right. So a lot of people went through a lot of things in order for it to, to occur the way that it does right now in terms of, of sport. Because back then, uh, the, we, it was an era where the safeties were white, the center was white. Uh, when I go and I look at my football team for the Miami Dolphins, we had, I think, maybe 22 guys, uh, 16 guys, 16, I believe, on offense that were, were African-American. Uh, and that's, that's it. Uh, it reflected who we, the society we lived in back then. Now, when you look and you see the disproportionate amount of, of black ball players, uh, because where they were rejected in my era, they were welcomed in their own. Right. And actually, you know, it's interesting. You're from Pittsburgh. The Big Ten had integrated by then. Had you considered any Big Ten schools or was West no, Texas? No, no Big Ten schools considered me. Okay. None. And by the time I started getting offers, I had already signed with West Texas because the guy came up from West Texas to get me. He sure. flew when he saw that game where I scored three times in a row off the same play on the first three carries. He 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 and the assistant coach uh, Sleepy Harris they drove flew up to Philadelphia and then drove from Philadelphia into Pittsburgh to to get to sign me and. Um, I, that's where I signed. And, and he had other players named Dwayne Thomas. Dwayne Thomas was a year after me, but uh, he and I played in the backfield. When I was number one in the country, he was number 10. So we yeah. had two backs from West Texas that, you know, that actually did that well. And another guy by the name of Rocky Thompson, he never panned out. But Dwayne was a number one pick. And then Rocky Thompson, because they thought it was a running back machine at West Texas that was hidden, he was drafted number one by the New York Giants in 1970. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, and but he never panned out. Yeah, there were three of you in the span of three years who all came out as uh, you know, kind of in the top couple of rounds. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and Dwayne yeah. Thomas, your senior year when you for a short period of time had set the single season record. Right. Oh, by the way, he had 113 carries for over 700 yards that year. So, yeah, I, mean, I, yep. I, I guarantee nobody in the USC back backfield had 113 carries next to the juice that year. Uh -uh. <laughs> yeah. And 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 the juice uh, sent you a sign, an autograph, didn't he? Oh, yeah, that was my junior year. Uh, it was a rival because he did that. And then <laughs> when. Uh, <laughs> When I, I couldn't wait to play against them, but then I, I didn't really start playing against them until 72 because I didn't start, I, didn't, I wasn't starting until 
71. I mean, 72. Um, right. You know, the Don and I had a falling out after Super Bowl six, and uh, he, he turned around and gave me a, an opportunity to play. And then, you know, I took advantage of it and the rest is history. But I always wanted to try and uh, juice. Uh, I played against him 13 times and beat him 13 times. And I never let him forget that in <laughs> any way, shape or form. <laughs> That regardless of what you did, dude, you never played in the championship. Yeah. It's kind of like, thank you for the autograph. I'll take the 13 yeah. wins. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so so you get you get drafted in the third round to the Dolphins. Zonka and Kick had come in the year before. Greasy the right. year before that. You come in with Bill Stanfield. Obviously, this team is building. Uh, the, the coach at the time is a guy named George Wilson, and he basically – says like look we're we're targeting 500 this year which didn't sit well well you know what i was a, i was a rookie then i think i know where you're going with this when uh i hadn't played a down of, of football as a pro and it was at our luncheon that where we introduced the first five draft picks to the and by the way it was over in miami beach which was formally segregated up until that little section right there where they they relaxed the the code that they had there to bring the three out of the five draft picks that we had were uh, African-American or black ball players, as they said. But see, this is a time in 69 when no blacks went to Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, LSU. So we played with guys, with white guys who had never played against anybody black and black guys who had never played against anybody white. Right. Now, you can't imagine that today. But yet, when you're showing up in the pros and you're you look at what you, where you came from in terms of your accomplishments, and it, it reflected how segregated the mind was from the substance. And then it started to change, but not because of any morality issue, because of the, 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 how the influence of black ball players. And that was when 1971, now keep in mind, it's 71. We won the AFC championship in 71. We lost in Super Bowl six in 1971 in 1971 season yep. but and that was the year that uh that alabama played uh sam the bam cunningham from uh usc and, and he scheduled the bear bryant scheduled that game down in tuscaloosa because he wanted these people to see that if we don't start getting some talent down here regardless of what color they are we're not going to be able to compete right. so he, he scheduled that game on purpose down there. And so when Sam DeBam Cunningham ran over every one of these little white guys, they, they tried to pull up his defensive back. This guy's 6'4", 235, and he's playing in college. So the, this guy, he emaciated them. So at the end, the most important aspect of Bear Bryant, who, who was one of my coaches in a couple of in, in an all-star games, he said, they asked him, he says, well, now that you've uh, – uh, he's seen what having uh, uh, African American ball players could do, and then black ball players that if you have to, the thinking that possibly that you might consider having black ball players play for your squad. This is after that 35 thumping that uh, they got from SC. And he plainly said, I may not be the first, but I won't be the third. <laughs> I think that's true. I won't be the first one, but I won't be the third. Right. So that kind of influence, even to Bear Bryant, lets you know that, and, that's, and how it is today, but the shell of it, of what it always was, was where we came from. 
And right. the, I, I marvel today when I see there are some players that have all black dudes on the defense that the NFL, like the African-Americans represent maybe 20, 23 percent of the of the country and, and re- represent 70 or 80 percent of the NFL. Right. Uh, I would go along starting counting and I would go one and after that, you know, on Monday night when they do the, the they do the side shots and show a guy introducing himself, you know, like so and so and so Purdue, so and so and so so U of M, that stuff, the introductions. I would count, I'd be going one, and then three or four guys would go two, three, and that would be the amount of white guys yeah. playing on the team. Yeah. But it's but it was exactly the opposite when it was when I played. And moreover, it didn't matter then, because back there in the seventies, at the beginning of this this era that we lived it lived in and through in the seventies, um, it was it was different for us. Uh Shula, he integrated the um the rooming se- se- sessions down in Miami when we had segregated rooming. He didn't he put Greasy and Warfield together? That was kind of the first time that, that had happened with that Miami. That was the first time, yes. That was the very first time, man. And and I remember him coming to me. And well, it's not him, but Zonk came to me and said that uh so I was, I was com- coming, and this was like Shula's first year, because formerly we had Wild Root, Vitalis, and Burl Cream uh, as toiletries uh, in the, the locker room. <laughs> and so when Shula comes, he bought Afro picks and Afro combs, Afro sheens, and he's telling Zonk, he says, Zonk, listen, I got some Afro picks and some Afro combs. How do black ball players feel about it? And Zonk says, why are you asking me? I'm Hungarian like you. How do I know? Go ask Merck or somebody. <laughs> And Zonk came back and related that. And that's because Don wanted to show you who he really was. You right. know, in terms of only concerned about one thing, can you play? Yeah, I, I saw somewhere where you in, in reference to him said that, you know, he he treated everybody with the same with respect to who they are, what they do when they're on a practice field, off the practice field, in the food hall, et cetera. You know, yep. it, it's what the game should be in terms of how it would look if everybody played without, <clears throat> you know, kind of the stigmas of the past. And I think you, right. you, by saying there's only one race, it's the human race. And, exactly. you know, it seems like he kind of delivered that message and then that was out of the way. And it was like, you know, let's go win football games. Yep. 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 And he was pretty tough four days right off the bat in Florida. I, you know what? Fortunately for me, I was hurt the first night and I missed every one of them. Uh, I was out for two and a half months. These guys were dying because they went from George Wilson. If it was too hot, we would go swimming instead of practice. Right. With Shula never had a drink of water in six years. Only did he realize after people were falling out that you have to drink water. But to him, it was a sign of weakness. <laughs> yeah. But he, yeah, I think yeah, I saw somewhere he said, look, I, you know, I tried to deliver the message, hard work equals success. And I didn't know if it was going to work or not, but then we started winning and, you know, funny how the guys start to follow then. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, but, and so, and early on though, you're, you're basically the, a kickoff returner. You're getting 50 or 60 carries a year and you're averaging like five and a half or six yards a carry. But for the most part, Zonka and kick are still the primary backs. Um, yeah, because he came from old school, uh, and he's he saw Jim and, and Larry as that uh, Paul Horning and and uh, 
Jim Taylor backfield. Sure. You know, two okay. big, burly white guys with no speed back there. And he wanted to use me in different aspects, but he had to make sure that I was, I was ready for it. And um, I, I don't blame him at that point. Uh, we had two established guys there. When we start winning, and it all culminated after Super Bowl six when I didn't play in the game in the backfield, and um, he, I, I, I questioned, you know, why would you bring us all the way down here if you're not going to use all the tools you have? And um, it it got pretty he- not heated, heated. It was a short and sweet one in the locker room after the Super Bowl six, um, where I was talking to the press and. Uh, he comes to me and he says, uh, well, actually, one of the other coaches saw, heard me talking to the press. So then he he comes up to me and says, if I find out you said anything, you had it. So the next day, he calls me up before I'm getting ready to go to the Pro Bowl because I won the kickoff return championship in 71 for the AFC, which is an automatic perk for the Pro Bowl. And um, Zonk was going, and we had about four or five guys going to the Pro Bowl, and I was one of them. So when we get out there to the Pro Bowl, but before we went, he called me in after that locker room incident the next day as he had to come home and face the music. And I had to go on to L.A. for the Pro Bowl for for this Pro Bowl number two. They're playing like 50 something now. This was the second Pro Bowl from the merger. 71 was the first one. I mean, 70 was the first one. 71 from the Pro Bowl was the second. one. So we're still it's still a real rivalry with us. It's not like these kids play it today. They goof off and have it like a carnival. It was still an extension of who the AFL versus the NFL was back in those those early days. And Floyd Little and Leroy Kelly were the running backs for the AFC. So uh, at, at the beginning of the second half, I'd had some okay kick returns in the beginning of the first half. And <laughs> Leroy said, listen, young blood we don't want to get hurt he said the last thing i want to do is spend my time over the summer nursing an injury i got in this game he said so we're going to go to mccafferty and tell him we're going to give you a chance to play and so i said okay so long story short he gave me the chance to play and uh i end up uh, being a leading rusher and uh had a couple of real good punt returns and a couple of kickoff returns and i played well enough that we won the game and uh, McCafferty remarked afterwards, he said, I'm glad I played this kid. He made a difference in the game. And then Landry, he comes back with, hey, you know what? I'm glad that kid didn't play against us. He might have made a difference. Now there's second guessing Don. Right. See, because that's how he sees it. So that summer, he calls me in and said, listen, I'm going to give you opportunity to play. This is coming up this year, and I'm going to see if you can uh, take it. I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you can if you can handle it, then uh, I'm going to give you time to, to play along with Jim. I say, that's all I want is a chance. And so, you know, I end up uh, having a good uh, offseason, I mean, exhibition season, and I earned the right to start. Uh, 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 and, and that was the start of what we what we did down there. I was I was never looking to beat Jim Kickout. I just wanted to win. Right. And so the, the crazy part about it is when, when we go to the next year in 72, we go undefeated. And now we're, it's our first day of press day. And the, the, the New York, I mean, the Washington Redskins people say that uh, we're going to be keying on Mercury Mars. 
And so Shula comes to me and he said, listen, they're going to be using it. We're going to use you as a decoy because they're going to be keying on you today. I said, okay, as long as we win. Right. Because I was only concerned about one thing and that was winning. And, and that was, that seemed to be, it seemed like all of you guys, just from interviews I've seen and, and, you know, things I've read, it seemed like all of you kind of had that mindset. Like obviously kick is not thrilled that he's not the feature, you know, tailback anymore, but you're winning. And he's coming exactly. in kind of goal line situations. Um, well, not goal line. He, it was, it's Shula. He liked to take advantage and call it. If it was a run pass, then, uh, then I was in the game. If it was pass run, then Jim was in the game. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And so that, so that 72 team. So now you're basically the, the, the starting tailback. Um, the three of you are rotating. You rush for a thousand yards. Larry rushes for over a thousand yards. Kick still has a good statistical season. And I think he has like 10 touch, 10 touchdowns on the year. That team, obviously the the one and only team to this day, 101 years of NFL football or whatever it's been at this point, right. four teams made it to the championship game undefeated. Only one won the championship game. Um, and that team, what what is just so incredible about that team, I know people have talked about the record and all that of the uh, other teams, but you were the number one offense in the league that year, the number one defense, number one in forced turnovers, last in turnovers of your own, the least penalized, you scored the most points and you gave up the least points and you never ran up the score. There was never, there was never a game where like, you know, when, when, when the game was in hand, he let it ride. He didn't you know go out and score three more touchdowns. I mean, it's just, that is about as thorough. Uh, uh, and that's, you know, that's about as comprehensive a, a clean sheet as you can have and then win every game. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and also just to, to, to expand on that part about how he was about not wanting to run a score up. Uh, <laughs> we, we were beating the Patriots and we beat him 52, nothing in 1972 down in the orange bowl. And he puts Del Gazo in and right at the beginning of the fourth quarter and he sells him, keep it on the ground. So Del Gazo now it's 38, nothing. So Del Gazo, he comes up for some reason and he, he throws a pass to, to Marlon Briscoe. Briscoe slips a guy instead of going 15 yards, he goes like 55 yards for a touchdown. Now it's like 40 something, nothing. So they're coming off the field and surely goes to Delgazo. He said, I told you to keep the fucking ball on the ground. And so he like yells at Delgazo because he, a pass and the guy scored a touchdown all right <laughs> so we go in now 40 something nothing and uh he come out again it's third down and something and he throws a pass to jim mandich mandich slips a guy the guy falls down he goes like 46 yards into the end zone for now now it's 51 nothing they're coming out of the game and shula comes to delgazo and he gets in his face I told you to keep the fucking ball on the ground. Get over here. Sit down. Earl, go back in the game and finish it. Then he goes to Delgado. I told you we don't ever do that shit around here. Now, the other side of that pancake is during the undefeated year until they went down in flames, uh, the Patriots, when the Belichick 
played they played somebody and beat them forty eight nothing. And then uh, I don't know how they did it, but it was forty something nothing. And they said, "Well, why do you have your starters still in the game?" And uh, and, uh, and he, uh, he goes, "I want I want to see if I uh, give them a chance to see if they could stop us." Yes, forty eight nothing. And you're giving them another chance to see if it can stop it. And that was the karma that, that Belichick created around that team. And I use that example because where Shula, he got pissed at our guys because they were playing like we hadn't won the game. Right. And he, he didn't want that, but you know, it wasn't our fault. We weren't like trying to throw touchdowns. It just happened, you know, in, yeah. the, in the execution of the plays, but he didn't want it to look bad. Whereas Belichick, and that was the, his karma that end that ended his uh, run because that was during that that championship season where they went eighteen and one. She was that he was he was very conscious of one thing: just winning and doing it right. Uh, when I see these guys come out of the huddle, and if you come out of the huddle and you don't hear one clap by eleven guys, you got to go back in the huddle because he didn't stand for the unity to in any way be disrupted in terms of what you had to get accomplished every single play. So we didn't need stars. We needed people who could execute and do the job because you were taught how to execute and do the job. Your level of talent was one thing, but your capability of executing the job would why you'd be starting for Don Shula. Right. And I mean, and you know, you look at that season, it's incredible. I mean, football, you know, big football fans know this, but you know, your starting quarterback, Bob Greasy goes down in the fifth game of the year and Earl Morrill is what, like 38 years old. And, and yeah, he comes was. in and he basically looks around the huddle. Everybody's kind of nervously looking at each other and he says, it's all right, we're going to win. Just stay with me here. And sure enough, I think he won 10 or 12 games that year between the balance of the regular season and the first couple rounds of the playoffs before Greasy came back in. Exactly. He, 11. He won 11 games for us. 11. Okay. That's yeah. You know, don't, don't worry. We're going to get it done. And he did. Yep. Uh, and we did. Uh, there was some angst about it in the beginning because he came to, in the game like in practice, he couldn't hit the side of a barn if it was sitting in front of you. But like he just had that ability. And the time came, he could put the ball where it needed to be in the game situation. Right. And the playoffs couple of close games. You guys were in Cleveland, and I saw you say one time the happiest you ever were on the football field was when Kick scored against Cleveland to kind of yep. clinch the game for you. Tell yeah. me about that moment. Yeah. Oh, it was just amazing because they had us on the ropes. For some reason, uh, certain teams played hard against us, so it wasn't like we were just mopping up everybody. We were executing in a way that allowed us to have superiority in, over the long run on the average in terms of our capabilities and success in executing plays on both offense and defense. But sometimes it was a struggle and it was a struggle with the, uh, with the Cleveland Browns that year. And uh, they were, they were playing us hard. They always played us hard. Um, we had a, a skip to a Monday night game. They, we had with them in, up in Cleveland uh, in 73. And that took, I broke one for 71 yards and the guy caught me around the nine yard line. But that was the only long run we have that set up the score for us to win. It was a hard-fought game that we came out of that game. I think we won fourteen to nine, or something okay. like that. But it was it was a tough game. They always played us well. And then bizarrely, 
the NFL rules at the time did not dictate that the team with the best record had home field advantage throughout. So even though you're 14 and 0 in the regular season, you win in the first round of the playoffs, you have to go to Pittsburgh for right. the AFC championship game. Um, yeah, which is only fitting. Play. It was only fitting if you're going to have the, the best case scenario to prove your point about who you play and playing Pittsburgh at home after they knocked out Oakland, that was okay with us. See, the problem is in during 1972, there was no home field advantage for, for uh, the opposing team because we came in there with a 50, 50 shot to beat you. And most often it was 51, 49 as proven by our record that we, you know, we, we were just so dominant about, executing and no kind of hurrah-rah about it. It was done on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday in practice. And then we take that product that we produce in practice and facilitate that into the game plan. And that's how we did it. It wasn't a, you see all these guys yelling and hooping and hawing? Never. Ours was never. It was always calm and cool and collected. And, uh, and he was the one in the middle of us uh, telling us how that, that these things have to be done and no mistakes. And uh, just play like you played in practice, and it, it was just a kind of an attitude that everybody adopted to that what their responsibility was to to do the the thing that they were set out to do, which was to help us win football games. Every player from special teams on down, which is why we were number one in every aspect of the the, the football game and how it's played. Number one in everything in '72, yeah. and 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 up there in '73 in the top five in everything. To your point about doing everything you can to win, first of all, that speaks to how he inserted you as the starting tailback earlier in the season, but also right. in the AFC championship game, things aren't going particularly well at one point, and he decides it's time to bring Greasy back into the game. Uh, after exactly. Three months of Earl Morrill, who did, he did his job, right? Did his job perfectly, you could argue. Absolutely, but it was time. Yep. It was his time, and I, and I said something that that Bob Greasy uh, about Bob uh, not long ago at a at a, a deal for Earl over in Naples when uh, Earl said he didn't want it, he he felt like he wanted to, he could still play in that game but Earl was the backup quarterback and he had always been the backup quarterback Greasy was ready to play before the Giants game in in at home and he didn't play Greasy was ready to play. The next, the last game. I mean, that last game at home against the uh, the Detroit Lions. He didn't. I mean, against the Colts, he didn't play. Greasy was ready to play against the the Cleveland Browns. He didn't play. It was only until the second half of the AFC Championship game when Earl started to falter in the first half that he decided it was time to put Greasy back in the game. So sure. he stretched it out as far as he possibly Shula did to have Earl come in and as long as he could do it, he was going to do it. But the second in playoffs, the second you see that, that Earl might be faltering, then it's time to put the quarterback in who he replaced. And that's all we did. Right. Right. And so then, so you win. Now you're in the Super Bowl against the Redskins. The game is a bit of a slug fest, but you're up 14, nothing with a few minutes to go. And then you have the field goal attempt and the, you know, kind of bungled snap and all of a sudden Garrow throws the ball and Mike Bass gets it and, you know, off to the end zone he goes. Now it's 14-7. And 
and the Redskins get the ball back before before the game is over. Uh, what what was the thinking on the sidelines at that point? You know, you you feel like it's there, and then all of a sudden you have to sweat it out the last four or five minutes. Well, uh, we never had any sweat out moments okay. uh, because we relied on getting the job done. And this, this isn't dice where you're hoping you throw the right numbers. We had to keep get, doing exactly what they were doing uh, throughout the game, and that's making sure that uh, that the Washington Redskins did not finish ahead of us. And the, our defense went out and did that. And when you say that about Garrow, I I did a, a piece for um, for Reebok back then. It was a long time ago. If you look up the the um, who was it Reebok's Perfectville, and you watch the outtakes from that commercial that we did that year, I picked every one of the people that are in that video uh, about Perfectville. That's how that whole thing about Perfectville started. And uh, Garrow. <laughs> Manny in in his uh, a football lot, not football life, in the uh, America's Games, that Manny and Kuchenberg, no, Manny and Zonk and Greasy, I think they did the um, the narration for this for this NFL films deal. Sure. And that's when uh, Manny he said, I uh, when Garrow tried to throw that ball, he said. I never thought that someone could be so yellow, but Carol proved me wrong. And so we, <laughs> we go all this time and then he puts that in this America's game that year. So Carol comes up to him during this filming, this commercial, and he goes, Manny on national TV, you call me a coward. He said, Carol, they wouldn't let me say chicken shit. <laughs> 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 and and by the way, for the, for the listener, Google the uh, Reebok Perfectville commercial, both the commercial itself and the outtakes. It's fantastic. It's yeah, that it is. is a great commercial. You kind of pulled that whole thing together, right? Did I hear that? Yes, yes. I picked all the guys. You know what? It originally came from when uh, the Colts were like nine and zero. And uh, there's something called cold pizza on at that time. This young woman, and she was like a part of the morning shows on, on uh, ESPN. Sure. So at 8 o'clock in the morning, they want to do this interview. I'm mad because I, I, why did I agree to do it at 8 o'clock in the freaking morning? They got to get there at 7 o'clock and start setting up and all that crap, waking me up. And I'd just gone to bed not long before that. And this was like in 2006 or so. And so uh, they asked Paul, he says, okay, now, Paul, you got to tell us whether you think that the giant, the Colts are going to go undefeated or not. And so I never go back with is not, is so, did not, did so. I always paint a picture of characterization for them to grasp onto as a parallel in order for them to understand what I'm about to say to them. And Paul was exactly the opposite. He was a diplomat. When the girl says, okay, Paul, you got to tell us whether or not you think that the Colts are going to win beat or not. And Paul says, well, I think that the, uh, no, you can't be on the fence now, Paul. You got to say whether or not they're going to go unbeaten or not. He says, well, since you put me on the spot, I think that uh, probably Pittsburgh has a chance to beat them today. Okay, now, Mercury, you got to tell us whether you think the Colts are going to unbeaten or not. I said, wait a minute. 
you woke me up to ask me whether or not I think the Colts are going to go unbeaten or not. Then nine weeks they got before you even know that. And you're asking me right now? I don't even know what I'm going to be doing in nine weeks. Don't call me when they're in my town. Call me when they're on my block. And then they cut this part off But Jim Rome, who is that news, I mean, sports guy. He has made some remarks about the, about our team, the 72 team. And uh, I said, and you, Jim Rome, I'm looking at the camera. Now, this one went over the air live, although they cut this part off. I said, and you, Jim Rome, I heard what you said the other day. Yesterday you said it, talking about our team. You don't know nothing about our team. Ain't going to talk about them. And I said, boy, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd probably be kicking your ass right now. And so I got that line from Richard Pryor in Car Wash. Yeah. But I, I, I sprayed him with it. And they were stunned because it went off over the air. You know, I mean, they eventually cut that part off. But that's how the part was about the, the neighborhood. Because right. that was part, don't call me when in my town. Call me when they're on my block. And they'd start up, hey, Mark, are they in your neighborhood yet? And I said, hey, you'll know by the zero behind the name. But it's not over until they got no more games to play and the zero is there. I'd always use these kinds of parallels to not really answer the question, but let them get it how stupid the question is. Now, this guy from uh, from the Fox, I can't think of his name now, uh, but he's uh, the, the, he does NASCAR and he does uh, the other stuff. So I can't think of his name, but he says to me, you know, Mercury, if the, uh, and the Colts were like, I think it were 14 and 0. He said, well, you know, if the Colts go unbeaten, they will have uh, bested your record. I said, don't I see you at Daytona every year? He said, uh, yes. I said, well, what's the fastest car? He said, well, that's, that's the pole. I said, well, what's the second fastest car? He said, well, well, that's the outside pole, also known as what? Number two, right? Row two, isn't it? He says, yeah. And then I pause and I look into the camera and I go, what's the second largest canyon in the country? And I let five seconds of dead air go by and I go, that's my point. Nobody cares. There is no best thing of the Grand Canyon. And by <laughs> the way, it's Paladuro Canyon. And the only reason I know that is because I went to school in Canyon, Texas. <laughs> and, you know, they don't like it, but when you're not bantering back with them, but you put them in their place, this guy, Keyshawn Johnson, when the Colts, I mean, when the Patriots were like 9-0, and and I went up to, uh, to wherever it is they have up there, and uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but uh, up there in Massachusetts, and uh, he comes up to me and he says, uh, you know, if uh, if faces go 19 to 0, they're going to best the Joe record. They're going to be better than you. I said, excuse me? He said, if the faces go 19 to 0, they're going to be better than you. I said, how? Well, how many games you play? I said, 17. Well, they play 19. That means they only made two games better than you. I said, when were you born? He said, I was born in 1972. I said, don't say another fucking word to me again. You were <laughs> shitting on yourself back in 1972, and you come all this way, and you're still doing the same thing. <laughs> and I walked <laughs> away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ruthless on it, man. I give them no breaks, none, zero. Well, you guys have earned the right to have that attitude, right? I mean, <laughs> you oh, yeah. did it. You walked oh, the yeah. walk. <laughs> exactly. And I was used to that. I said uh, – 
how do you guys how do you guys handle it that when uh, are, are you rucking to safe for another year i said why do you people insist on us caring if somebody goes unbeaten or not why would i have skin in the game i don't care my spot is already secure my seat is already there it's only when you know nothing about it you realize it's only what you make it we won a football game but it's happened to be and in a way that which nobody else won that football game, which meaning we won the first one and we won the last one and we won everyone in between. Now we not be, may not be the greatest, but as, uh, as this guy said, it was a coach. I can't think of his name. Now he said, you are who your record says you are. And that's when when I recognize that that's who we are. We may not be the greatest because greatest is you can say, well, I think this, well, I think that, but what's your record? You got the best record? Okay, that means you're the best. Right. And and that part, I, I hold to it. And we were just regular guys. Not like, you know, guys you see today who, you know, what they they hold their game as movie stars. Ours was like just regular people. Never held ourselves above or below anybody else. And uh, just went about our business winning. And then, incredibly, the next year, you were almost as good again. You were you you went twelve and two uh, in seventy three. I think at the right. beginning of the season, Shula. I mean, when you talk about the pressure being on, Shula says, "Okay, the goal is to do it again." At which point, Zonka says, "Who's going to break Greasy's leg?" Um, uh, yeah, right. When okay. when you, there's three seasons: the regular season, the playoff season, and if you're good enough, your season boils down to one game, and that's how you have to see it if you played for Don Shula. It right. wasn't about that part. We had job, a job to do in getting to first winning the division, second winning the conference, and then third winning the championship. So each one has its own life once you get to that point. And and even though we were 15 and two, we were a better football team uh, statistically than we were back then as far as um, how we won games. And the way that our defense was, in 1973, our defense had over 1,700 plays. They had, I think, six mental errors. Oh, my God. Six mental errors in 1,700 plays. I'm sorry, 12. 12 mental errors in 1,700 plays. I mean, wow. for a football game? Come on. But that's yeah. because they were coached so well that – that mistakes were not tolerated in practice because if you do, do it in practice, you're going to do it in the, in the game. And right. so uh, that, that was our whole thing to make sure that the product that we put out on that field uh, was consistent. And w- those two games that we lost in uh, one against uh, the Colts, um, Shula was, I think doing that for Snellenberger. Uh, he didn't really play us. Paul was playing in the game. Uh, and then he saw the greasy wasn't playing. And so he wasn't. He didn't want Earl to be thrown to him in '73. This was so he he got out of there. Uh, it, it it just it was just a, a great thing that that we were able to accomplish uh, with regard to everybody and everybody's contribution on the team. And it's and it's. I don't think that the, that they may have a team that would would go that far, but it wouldn't be the same because it's a different era now. Winning is different than it was then, with the exception that when a guy asked me, he says, well, who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? I said, hey, I've never been wrong 
since I developed this philosophy of who I think is going to win. And I predict that whoever has the most points when the clock runs out, that will be the winner. If you're playing, you just make sure it's you. Right. Yeah. Well, and that, that team, yeah, I've read a couple of people say that, you know, that 73 team people think is, you know, one of the best teams of all time. You guys roll through the playoffs. None, none of the games right. were close to include the Super Bowl win over the Vikings. Right. That year, you run for just under 1,000 yards. You average six and a half yards a carry, which is just amazing. And I should point out, when you retired, you were third all time. You're still in the top five or six all time of average yards per carry at over five yep. yards a carry. And a couple of them are quarterbacks. Who well, obviously, that's just a different animal because when they have the yeah. ball in hand, people aren't expecting <clears throat> right. run. So it's basically you, Jim Brown, uh, Marion Motley, and Jamal Charles, I think, right? For yeah, running. well, you wait a minute now. Um, Barry Sanders and Gail Sayers both average five yards because when I quit playing football, there are five of us. Uh, and Barry Sanders, um, Jim Brown was first at, at 5.1. I was second at 5.2. Gail Sayers and, and Barry Sanders tied for third at 5.0. That okay. was it for that club right there until Jamal Charles came along. Uh, the, all the players from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, they stayed in that position. And that kid, Jamal Charles, is the only guy who is not from that era prior than to the 2000s. That's incredible. And I, I, I saw a great quote from you, um, you know, when just, you know, kind of about your running style, but it speaks to that ability to just pick up that much yardage every time you have the ball. You started out playing touch football in a kid's backyard and the same principles right. applied in the pros. If you can't touch me, you can't tackle me. Exactly. And it, it, it takes away that basic law of nature. And when you said that, it made me think of uh, Garrow, because I now see Garrow, and Garrow is a, a great friend of mine. I love the guy. Uh, uh, but I saw what he did. He said, oh, uh, this guy was a top-notch kicker. He was the all-AFC kicker. He was uh, the kicker of the decade. He was uh, just all kind of established records and stuff. But he's remembered for that debacle in the, the Super Bowl. And when you take a close examination – and I, not long ago, I, I wrote something about that, that a guy had put about Garrow uh, trying to throw the football. And I said, Garrow was not trying to throw the football. Garrow was looking at the first time he'd ever been involved of the true aspect of playing football, which is if you got that ball in your hand, they're going to be coming after you. Right. And he didn't know what that meant, but he knew that having the ball in his hand meant that they were going to come after him. Right. Which is why he went to try to throw the ball with no laces. That's a pure panic move yep. because you're like watching the nation, a game or not a game, but you're watching this, the shows on TV and you see these animals once they're cornered and they're trying to do everything they can to get away. Well, when you got that football in your hand, that's the basic law of nature right there, which is fight or flight. And it happened twice with him on that play because once when he tried to throw the ball and no using laces, that means he wasn't trying to throw it. 
he was trying to get it out of his own hands. Yeah. Because he saw what the onslaught was about to do. He'd only seen it. He was about to become part of it. And then the basic law of nature kicked in twice in that play because when he batted it up in the air, he started running down the field. And Mike Bass, he had a chance where he was right at an angle where if he just continues and throws his body at the guy, he doesn't get in the end zone. And we, we end up at least trying to stop him from being a 14-7 game. <clears throat> but Garrow, he, he, he slowed up just as he got to the guy because basic law of nature, too, kicked in again. When he then had to be the person, the Zach guy got the ball, now he has to go get it. And all of this in a span of about eight seconds, in which his whole concept of thought of football in those eight seconds turned from him being a kicker to him being a scared individual out there succumbed by the basic law of nature, which is fight or flight. Right. Yeah. You ever heard it explained like that? No, that was actually, that was actually a very interesting take. (laughs) Take? Um, I was there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, nobody had a better seat for it than you. So, (laughs) so, so you got, so you win the back-to-back Super Bowls, 74 comes around and the WFL is starting up and kick Zonka and Warfield uh, basically announced that they're going to go to the WFL. They're going to play out 74 and then go to Memphis for 75. Um, Obviously that's the beginning of kind of the unwind of a lot of that team. You still have a good year in 74, but you come up short. I got hurt that year when they signed it. I signed a new contract because uh, Joe Robbie, he would never renegotiate anyone's contract under any circumstance. He reached out to two players on the football team, Larry Little and Mercury Morris. He renegotiated my contract, and Larry Little went to become the first guard, the first lineman, offensive lineman, to make $100,000. That's what he made. I signed a contract. I went from three years, 150000 to five years, 635000 So that changed our lives also, just them signing right. and going to, that, that, to the World Football League because it turned everything on uh, upside down. Shula was, of course, he was pissed. Uh, Jim, I can understand him wanting to leave um, because it, it wasn't working out the way he wanted it to work out. And uh, getting a chance to get that money and, and get out of there, uh, him and Paul and 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 Larry, I, I I don't hold anything against them for doing that. They did what was best for them because hey, the NFL would cross them the same way if the situation brought brought itself to bear. Sure. So I was glad that they got a chance, and that gave me a chance to to make more money. But it also put me in a position where now I was going to be the feature back. And I'd run into problems with Don uh, at, at times when we, that in, in 71, when I said that I should have played in the game and then uh, that business. And then uh, I, when I got hurt in 1974, after they gave me all that money, they're mad because I got a knee problem now. And so now they want to try to push me in there because they're paying me a lot of money, not because I need to get well. 
but because I need to be playing to justify them giving me the money. So they had already started going off the reservation in that sense, because you're looking at priorities here. Do you want to make sure that the man is able to play the next year, or you just want him out there because you paid him a lot of money? Right. And the, and the latter is what prevailed because he drafted a kid by the name of Benny Malone then. And Benny Malone was a good ball player. He was a running back from Arizona state. He and I were about the same size. He may have been about five, five, six pounds heavier than I was, but Benny, he was not an elusive runner and he liked the basic law of nature, which is fight or flight. Meaning if I got a chance to try to run over a guy who's bigger than me, then me, I'm going to try to hand fight the guy first. And you're not going to get any hands on me. I have that Bruce Lee stuff going on almost every run. Because if, if the way to get to you is to get a hold of you, then you ain't getting a hold of me. You know, I'll fight you like Bruce Lee the whole way down the field. Whereas Benny, if, if there was a car coming and he had to cross the street in traffic to get to the other side, he'd cross the street to get hit by a car. Because he that's what happened to him because he would challenge everybody that tried to tackle him. And certain people you can do that to, and certain people you can't. Well, and that obviously caused him to be hurt a lot at that particular time. So uh, we played in 74, uh, and Benny had a good year that year. That was his rookie year. And I think in 1974, I had some problems with uh, Shula. I uh, I was supposed to show up and get treatment, at, at uh, or he gave it to us as an option to get treatment or do something else. And so I, I did something else. I worked out and then I rested my, my knee. And so he's like, where are you, where the fuck you been? Uh, where, how come you haven't in practice? I said, I was at practice. You weren't at the meeting. I said, you gave us an option. You said to go. And this was like a, one of those things where you just did it on your own. There was no official stuff, but because I was hurt, I was hurt the whole year. I ended up walking out on him and then, I, I I didn't quit the team, but I I walked out and then they suspended me. Uh, and so that I walk out on Wednesday, he suspends me on Thursday. So the headline is Mercury Moore suspended. And and I had like I said, I got hurt that year, and I had only carried the ball like thirty times that year. Didn't have many carries, and and then it just was a, a awful year for me in in that 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 sense. Um, and then kicking Zonk and Warfield were leaving. Um, in uh, in 1975, so the 75 came, and uh, so Benny Malone and I are now splitting time. Benny gets hurt, so going through the first part of the year, Benny, uh, as I said, he got hurt, and so now I'm playing alone. So through the first six games, seven games, I'm coming off a 300 yard plus games in a row. I'm second in the league behind Juice with uh, 600 yards after the first seven games. And I'm about 35 yards behind OJ. So we're kind of assuming that same position we had when uh, we were in college. <laughs> and then Shula, when, when uh, Benny came back, he said, well, uh, I want to start Benny alternating with you. I, now we're, we're, we're six and one without us alternating. So we turned four and three. And, and in the middle of that, I, I, there was a game, I gained 100 yards last week. And this week, I don't play. Carried the ball two times. And so I got kind of pissed off at the at, at dawn for that. And it was not pissed off, but kind of adamant about not wanting to play there anymore. And that was, I shouldn't have done that in the middle of the season. 
but I it just I just did. And so the, uh, the press guys asked me, want to know why why I was uh, looking like I was looking and I was upset. And he said, well, uh, I said, well, Shula wanted to play Benny Malone and uh, I'm coming off a 300 yard game. So that means he doesn't want me around here. And so then they run back in and tell this guy, uh, go back and tell Shula that. And then Shula comes back and the guy says, well, I want out of here next year. And Shula comes back and he goes, next year? Tell him I can accommodate him for next week. So then the guy comes back and tells me that, what Don says. Then I go back and tell him, I said, to calm down. I said, but I'm not going anywhere. I, I'm on this team and I'm going to try to do the best I can. Well, long story short, then at the end of the year, when a guy asked me, where would you like to go? I said, I've got to go to Pittsburgh, Cleveland, or Oakland, any place but San Diego. So after the first five games of 76, I'm ready to play. I'm ready to turn it over a new lead. And so, but I don't play in 76. And, and so the first five exhibition games, I'm going, hey, how, how am I going to get ready to play if I don't play? So at the end of the last, uh, uh, the week before the last exhibition game, uh, Carl Tassif, the, the backfield coach, and also the guy who told you, uh, uh, coach wants to see you and bring your playbook. Oh, so when he tells you, coach, you want to see you and bring your playbook, you know, you're cut. Yeah. And so that's what he did. And so as I'm getting on the plane, I see he comes, he calls me in and tells me first, he says, listen, we couldn't get what we wanted for you. So we, uh, we, we put you on the market and we were able to get a third round draft pick uh, from San Diego. Now, remember now back there, I said, well, the guy says, where'd you like to play? I said, oh, you know, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, or Oakland, any place but San Diego. He sent me right to the Chargers because I said that's the place I didn't want to go. And so right. as I'm getting on the plane to go to, uh, to, to San Diego, I said, you tell Shul, I said, he'll do no better than wherever I'm going. And that year, the Chargers were 6-8. and eight, And that year, Don Shula suffered his first losing season, and his record was 6-8. and eight. Oh, That's amazing. <laughs> And so, and so you played that one last year with the Chargers, yeah. uh, six and eight season. Bill Walsh is the offensive coordinator. What was, yeah. what was that like? Bill Walsh was a great offensive coordinator. Bill Walsh thought that he was going to be coaching. Bill Walsh, here's, here's the irony. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed my time as a, as a pro, but I was done after 76 because I – uh, 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 my knee was hurt, and then I hurt my right knee uh, in, a, in another game uh, against Tampa. And so I was, you know, not, I was fed up with the game. I'd had enough. And, and well, how are you going to top yourself? You go from a team that was, uh, that set records that are still uh, the, the, the mark, the benchmark, and then you end up with the Chargers. But it's kind of like how I came in because George Wilson was the same kind of coach as Tommy Prothero. And you had, a, you had a great quote at that time. You said, you retire when the game has had, had enough of you. You quit when you've had enough of the game. And yeah, that's what I told the guy. because I'm quitting. He said, right. well, I hate to see you retire. I said, I'm not retiring. I'm quitting. And that's what I told him. You quit when, you, when you've had enough of the game. You retire when the game's had enough of you. Right. And I had enough. Yeah, it was time. Um, and then... I guess, I guess just like, you know, kind of want to reflect a little bit on a few different things. Um, some, some of those, you know, obviously just a, a 
legendary team that you played for with the Dolphins, Hall of Famers all over the place, all pros every year all over the place. Tell me about that offensive line running behind Langer and Kuchenberg and Larry Little and Evans and more. I mean, you know, talk about the offensive line a little bit. Well, you know what? It, it was great that we had players who didn't think a lot about themselves, but primarily about what their responsibilities were as offensive linemen. Right. And all of them, they, they weren't the greatest, but they were the best at executing what Shula wanted them to get done. You see these kids today, their technique is so poor that their footwork is so poor that they could be great if they developed the technique behind it that would allow them not to get beat. But we played in an era where you couldn't use your hands. Right. You had to use your elbows and your, your thumbs tucked in back towards you. That was the only way you could block. These guys, when you extend and then you're getting beat on the extension, you're going to use your hands to hold the guy. It's right. just human nature. And, and, and now they developed a whole science out of that where the guys, they come in with the availability to be really, truly, I don't, I, hate, I don't want to put great in, but really, truly effective individuals at executing their job. That's blocking the way that you're supposed to block. So it doesn't matter who you are. It only matters that you get the job done in executing that block. And that right. went for me too. I knew that I had to, I had to knock guys down that were 6'4", 6'6", 260, 270. And I took pleasure in folding them up like, a, 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 like a, one of those knives because I knew how to do that. Uh, and I was quick enough. I remember one time this guy says to me, he says, are you Mercury Morris, huh? I, that's as long after I quit. He said, hmm, well, this guy was like 6'9", 300 pounds. He said, well, well you're just an itty-bitty thing. I said, you know what? So is a bullet. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Who, who were some of the, uh, obviously you were pretty elusive, but somebody had to tackle you. Who were some of the guys who you didn't love going up against? Anybody stand out? Not really, no, because I, we had such great execution. Um, I never looked at anybody in that light that it couldn't be handled out there. Uh, and plus, I had some specific ways in which I, you, you're allowed to hit me out on the field. You can do whatever you can do. That's you. But once I cross that goal line, it's over. So right. I don't accept any punishment like hitting somebody when they're at, uh, across the goal line. I was ready to fight on seven or eight occasions when somebody thought that they could run up and do that shit to you because they just got beat. As a matter of fact, there's a friend of mine. Uh, he was a, a, a defensive back for, uh, for the Baltimore Colts. Uh, Rick, 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 Rick. Volk? Yes, Rick Volk. Rick and I were coming back from a banquet not long ago. And uh, he was telling me about, uh, I torched the Colts for 12, 12 carries, 144 yards. When Snellenberger came back for his first game as a coach, we beat him 44 nothing. And uh, I scored a couple of long touchdowns in that game. 
And uh, <laughs> Rick was telling me, he told me this a couple months ago. He said, you know, when you see that picture, it shows me breaking it on him in my highlights. And then it shows him right around the five-yard line, right before the goal line. It shows him in parallel with me, but going out of bounds. He's going out of bounds. So I said, Rick, you know, I can sense that you were over there. All those years, when I watched that, I still have that sense that you were there, but you never came after me. He said, yeah, because one of these defensive backs told him, he said, hey, man, listen, if you get behind Mercury Remorse, man, hey, if he beats you, don't follow him into the end zone because you do. That's a picture that's going to be in the newspaper tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's, it's kind of like the – go ahead. And so but when you watch the video, when you watch my video, and you'll see Rick in the highlight video that I have on the, on the set. It's one of the last ones. You'll see Rick in the Colt uniform. He had the bead on me, but I was too close to the goal line for him, and he went out right before he crossed the, the plane where the goal line was. So he never set foot in the end zone itself because he didn't want to take his picture taken. <laughs> being where he is and me being in the end zone. Oh God, that's so funny. That's like the football equivalent of not wanting to be posterized by a dunk in basketball. Exactly. You you don't want to be that guy in the picture. (laughs) (laughs) Which, which actually kind of reminds me of a a quote I saw from Zonka when you guys did the, the, uh, the show, the perfect backfield Uh, you're up at his fishing lodge and you're talking about each other's running styles and he said, right. look, if you cheat up to stop me, we're going to toss it out to Merck. And all you're going to see are his tail taillights going down the field. And then he's going to come back and tell you all about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, well, you know, it was crazy because once Nick Bonacani, it was against, and it was my best game as a pro. It was the third game of the season in 1973. And Nick comes to me before the, we go out for a warm-up, and he says, hey, listen, I'm telling you right now, I heard it, and so I'm passing it on to you. They said they're going to be gunning for you today. I said, gunning for me? He says, yes, yeah, so I'm just telling you now, you know, you know, mindful of that they're going to be after you today. I said, well, tell them to come on down. And so I remember just like we were walking, I said, tell them to come on down. And so, like, uh, the first play, I, I scored on my the third play, that I carried I gained, I think it went like 46 yards or 47 yards for a touchdown. And so then we, we kick off to them. They go three and out and we, they, we, they punt bus. They, we get the ball on the 29 yard line. It's tossed 28. Now this is the second play, the first play of the second half. I mean, of the second quarter, because I scored the last play in the second quarter. And so then after they changed it and, and, we're going the other way. It was a toss 28. I went 71 yards for the touchdown. And then on the third one, I went 51 yards for the touchdown. Uh, I scored on him three times, 15 carries, 197 yards. We, we beat him 42 to 20 something. It wasn't like we had the game all wrapped up, but that was the game they said they were going to be after me. And then, so Nick comes up to me and he goes, Hey, that shit I dug worked on your work, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just want to uh I just want to say, Mercury, this has been great. 
uh, having the chance to, to talk to you and, and kind of go through uh, the story of, of you growing up in Pittsburgh, your days at West Texas, obviously your days with the Dolphins. And as part of that iconic backfield, it's been a real pleasure hearing the stories. And um, I want to thank you for coming on Chasing Hardware today. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you, man. I, I enjoy the fact that I played in an era that uh, we're regular guys playing. We were, and I always looked at us as regular players who did an extraordinary thing. And we held ourselves above or below no other, other players. We just went out there and did what we needed to do because the guy who was coaching us was such a hell bent on making sure that we did everything right. He was relentless and it paid off. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.